Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wild West Show. My name is Don Horn, and I'm the editor of Process West and IPPT magazines. Today, we welcome to the show Dennis McConaughey, retired TC Energy executive, better known as TransCanada to many industry veterans, and an author on energy climate policy in Canada. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you for having me. The U.S. election, it's just days away. Now, uh, from your perspective, who would be better for Canada's oil and gas sector, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Well, uh, I, I think that's an easy uh, answer, uh, Donald Trump. But, but let me just elaborate uh, on that point. There are many Canadians uh, and many Canadian business interests who would look forward to a Biden presidency as a kind of return to normalcy. Uh, one great example of what that normalcy would look like is uh, the episode when the United States decided to impose tariffs on our aluminum exports on the basis of national security reasons, which was on its face absurd. Uh, and it was, that was an example of the you know, fundamental lack of predictability and consistency and observance of normalities. Uh, and, and, and that is a legitimate point about dealing with Donald Trump, like, like where is he going? But I think in respect of oil and gas, which is what you specifically asked me, uh, there's no doubt that Donald Trump's re-election will uh, virtually assure the completion of the KXL pipeline and everything that that means for the potential of Alberta and the oil sands industry to increase production to its most lucrative induced market, the U.S. Gulf Coast refinery complexes. At the same time, the United States will uh, continue to avoid uh, a set of policies on climate change uh, that will likely validate what the Trudeau government is apt to do. So the Trudeau government is right on the cusp of a whole array of initiatives that will change how Canadians are allowed to use hydrocarbons, but certainly they are going to continue to feel more validated if a Biden presidency occurs in terms of their attempts to constrain any growth in the Canadian hydrocarbon production sector. So I think the answer to that question is, is very straightforward. Uh, I think that is an important point to, uh, to, to bring up is that uh, the oil and gas sector they, they've been hammered by uh, a, a couple bills that the Trudeau government has introduced, and yes. uh, also a, a number of the uh, green initiatives that are being brought in, which are creating more hurdles to jump, more red tape. And uh, uh, that was something I was going to explore as well as uh, Trump does have a made in USA policy, but he also is very much pro-expansion, pro-industry. So that does balance out, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, many people would say Trump's biggest economic accomplishments were reducing taxes and reducing regulation. And that was especially the, one of the great distinctions between the experience of the U.S. oil and gas production sector, at least at the federal level. And in, because in most of the states where there is oil and gas production, not unlike Alberta, they're basically aligned with growing that production. It's typically the federal government where the bureaucratic resistance comes from that. And of course, the four years of Trump really took that off the table. Unlike in Canada, where at the federal level, as we saw play out, uh, and there was, and it's, a, it's really what my second book was about, Breakdown, the litany of lost major infrastructure projects in this country, um, going from Northern Gateway, which was entirely 
on the hands of Justin Trudeau. Um, Energy East, the loss of the Petrocas LNG project, uh, and the fact that um, even to this day, TMX is, is still vulnerable to the whims of the Trudeau cabinet as to whether it will be completed. Uh, as well as a general low tax posture, uh, and that actually was more significant to the oil and gas industry uh, than made in America because whatever one, however that was applied in other sectors, when it came to Canadian oil and gas, Trump consistently tried, uh, has done everything that he could at the executive level to advance KXL, which was really, of course, an import alternative for the United States of heavy oil for their um, refinery complexes in the Gulf Coast, which really is in competition with Mexico and Venezuela. So, you know, I think made in America is clearly something that's core to Donald Trump, but uh, it really had little relevance in the oil and gas sector. And, and I think it's rather ironic that, um, I mean, uh, with the U.S. Uh, looking to uh, restrict Venezuelan oil and policies that have been introduced by Donald Trump, uh, the, uh, the Americans have done much more for Alberta and Saskatchewan for that matter as well than uh, anything Ottawa has done. In fact, it's been diametrically opposed. I very much agree with the point you've just made that the question of eliminating hydrocarbons as part of how we actually try to run a modern economy and just how expensive it is going to be to substitute from them, whether that's how we use them to stay warm, how we move, use them to, to move around, and how we use them to create other petrochemical project, pro, products that are indispensable to modern life. That substitution is going to be very, very costly. And yet that is implicit in the climate goals that I think are at the core of the aspirations of the Trudeau government and certainly will be a, uh, the same for a Biden administration. And so I think it's especially important that they're held to account to tell their uh, electorates uh, just how expensive this is going to be, what extra costs are going to be imposed on current generations to create uh, a mitigation of a climate risk. And of course, I would make the point consistently, uh, a point that I, I, I've made in my two books, that you know there may be a better way of going about this. There may be a better alternative than just the constraint of hydrocarbon utilization as compared to a policy of that doesn't use regulation mandate subsidies constraints but rather relies on carbon prices that are applied uniformly across all the developed countries and that includes china um, to have a slower gradual adaptation to uh, less carbon intensive alternatives but at the same time, using the proceeds of these carbon taxes to offset the impacts on people who can't afford any higher cost to their uh, cost of living, but also to adaptation spending, which is really a, a way of trying to reduce the specific impacts. So whether that means more dikes around Florida, better forest management practices, other uh, incentives for the development of plausible technology whether that's improvements in CCS technology where it makes sense, or even other improvements in trying to get to other cleaner fuels, whether those are potentially biofuels or hydrogen. That's a more gradualist, a more rational policy, it seems to me, than what will be an attempt now to have very severe interventions. So 
I think there is a real place, not just for their political opposition, but for other commentators to draw out this fact and make it more part of the public policy debate in both countries. You're listening to the Wild West Show, a podcast that can be found on the Process West website, www.processwest.ca. Joining us today is retired TC Energy Executive and author on energy climate policy in Canada, Dennis McConaughey. Now, we've touched a little bit on um, uh, some of the climate policies that are coming out of Ottawa. What is your take on the current Liberal NDP coalition government? Well, I'm glad you called them that because that's effectively what they are. Uh, Here's what we are right on the cusp of. Um, You know, a few weeks ago, um, Catherine McKenna announced, you know, a set of infrastructure related expenditures. uh, that, that all, you know, are in the billions of dollars. Um, those relate to putting billions into the retrofitting of uh, various buildings in Canada to make them um, presumably better insulated so they consume less uh, hydrocarbons to keep them warm. Other expenditures on accelerating green uh, generation alternatives in the electric sector and to also relate to uh, more transmission infrastructure uh, to move green energy around. This really relates to Eastern Canada and uh, trying to make salvage some value out of Muskrat Falls and others. And this will be incredibly expensive and incredibly, um, uh, (laughs) we already know it's gonna be very problematic even before they start. But in addition to those uh, already announced ideas, they're, they're on the cusp of things like a national fuel standard, which is going to add costs to Canadians um, as they try to deal with uh, how they move around in this country or how they keep themselves warm. And the great irony of this is that, you know, the, if you take it to its logical extreme, it would really preempt Canadians from using their own crude oil. Oil sands produce crude oil because its carbon intensity would be deemed to be too high relative to a standard they'd like to set. Uh, and the idea that Canada ha- will be able to substitute easily biofuels, biodiesel at costs that are acceptable to Canadians. Uh, I mean, I think what we have being created is a kind of event very similar to what Ontario experienced when they tried to implement renewables into their electric generation mix and the ultimate rate consequence to their uh, rate payers <laughs> essentially had to be bailed out by their taxpayers. So the same people end up costing themselves more. Uh, uh, add to that, there will be, if not mandates, there will be subsidies for the conversion to electric cars, etc. And my objection to all of this is really, if we have a national carbon tax, then what that should be the only policy instrument. Like if we're buying into a carbon tax of whether it's 30 or $50 a ton, people know using hydrocarbons is now more expensive. They can make an economic choice whether they're prepared to pay that because they still get value from using hydrocarbons versus being compelled by the government to not be able to use them or being uh, incented by the government to make a substitution that wouldn't otherwise be justified. And you know, Canadians need to know that our current carbon tax is about as high a number as almost any developed country is actually applying on itself. And again, the beauty of a carbon tax is that it's transparent. The politicians who impose it have to be accountable to it. And individuals need to internalize it, that if they really care about carbon, they're paying for it. 
and presumably they want to. And if they don't want to, there'll be a political adjustment. So I think this is very much what we're going to see more of from the, quote, Trudeau-Singh government. And where it's really going to be, I think, um, in full force is in the next federal budget. So whether in this fiscal update in a few weeks, Christia Freeland chooses to use that as the uh, occasion to point to more of this, my own view is that it is more likely going to come in the budget in the spring, because I suspect there is still wrangling within the federal government between her department and the rest of that government about just how expansive some of these, um, their version of a quote, a Green New Deal is gonna look like. And, 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 and when you look over to the other side, the, the Biden presidency again, like they are going to try to implement Joe Biden's 1.7 trillion climate plan, which is gonna to try to do many of the same things, eliminating hydrocarbons out of the electric generation space, incent transportation substitutes, uh, and for all of his sophistry around fracking, there's no question that they're going to make the expansion of uh, hydrocarbon production more problematic just through their levers of regulation and, and bureaucratic delay. So I think that's uh, what we can expect from this current government, and I think there's every likelihood that this current government could last a long time because there's no incentive, uh, as was demonstrated this week, that the NDP has any interest in, in, in fighting an election today. Or, and why would they have an interest in fighting an election <clears throat> next year you know, if they're still sitting at 13% in the polls? Uh, it's, it's very true. And uh, um, I know the, uh, the only real alternative um, uh, to uh, put forward uh, some decent infrastructure and uh, some uh, energy policies that would benefit Albertans and Canada as a whole would be coming from the uh, Conservative Party. Uh, I, I think one of the knocks in the, um, uh, I think the first election and the second one as well, uh, was that the Conservatives weren't presenting a very clear platform on, um, on their carbon plan. And, yes. Um, and it, it, uh, I don't know, do you see that coming now or is it still a bit fuzzy? Well, uh, I, it, this is a great question and thank you for asking it. Uh, the Conservatives, are, I think, are plagued by an unfortunate legacy of Stephen Harper, frankly, in terms of this uh, doctrinaire resistance to carbon taxes. Because what has bedeviled whomever it has been, but it certainly bedeviled Sheer, and it will bedevil O'Toole. When you write, when you eliminate carbon taxes as the preeminent climate policy instrument, you take away really the only alternative that anybody would credibly say you have a coherent position that I can actually understand. So if we're, as a country, buying into carbon pricing, but carbon pricing that isn't more extreme than the people we trade with are imposing on themselves, which is like a rational country would presumably want to have that as a part of its design of this tax. Then you're saying that you're kind of doing this to the same level of intensity as uh, the rest of the world is taking this thing seriously. But what you're avoiding is the resort to regulations, which of course are implied carbon prices much higher than the ones that you, 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 you don't want to impose. Now, a point that Kenny continues to make, and I think this is regrettable because it erodes the credibility of conservatives, of small C conservatives on the issue of climate. 
Of course, it needs to be applied at the retail sector because that's where individual voters actually have to internalize, do I care this much about climate risk? Because they're paying for it. And when you blunt that and use this business of, I'm only gonna apply it on large industrial emitters, but by the way, because most of their products are exported, I have to rebate tax back anyway. And I mean, they do that through different uh, programs. Um, in Alberta, we sometimes call it <clears throat> a system of allocations, but the net effect of it is you're rebating the carbon tax because they have to be competitive with where they're trading to. Uh, domestic consumption, individual Canadians' consumption of energy, you can impose a tax on them. But the point is you want to because then they actually are facing directly, do I care about climate policy? And I, I, so I, I do think the Conservatives are, uh, have been wrong to uh, have rejected this alternative. I think O'Toole would be much better served to... Um, and regardless of how much he owes Jason Kenney for being the current conservative leader, like until they get out of that box, they are going to be challenged to be credible in national debates on climate policy. And I, I would say that unequivocally. And, and it's think, really unfortunate for this country. Yeah, and I think that it's, uh, it's as if you're starting a race and once the gun fires, you're told, now wait 10 seconds and then you can start. Because uh, when you uh, disregard any kind of carbon tax concept, immediately you lose an entire block of Toronto voters. Well, and not just Toronto voters, but I would say, I think even people in Alberta, especially people in the industry who were thoughtful about this issue, they have always been prepared to accept carbon taxes because they know there is a carbon risk of some dimension that does have to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with with some intelligence and it has to be dealt with in a consistent global fashion, something that I, I don't believe has been the case in respect of the Paris process because it's asked so much more of Canada than it has of other countries. So like many have recognized, even within Alberta, that carbon taxes was the right policy instrument, but it has been this dogma of the Canadian right that we're going to reject that. We're going to invoke uh, other... Uh, technology breakthroughs, regulations, unspecified, and because everyone knows what you end up getting when they actually are in power is they don't really do anything. Uh, and that becomes problematic because, uh, and as I said before, even when they are applying it on large industrial emitters, when you're trading two countries that don't have the same carbon tax, you have to make an adjustment to rebate back them the, the, the tax or else they have a real competitiveness problem. So, I mean, Yes, I, I would really hope that, that in this period of time before the next election is actually called, if it is called next year, that there's a real reconsideration amongst all conservatives, small c, but especially at the federal level of basically changing their position on carbon policy, climate policy. And it, uh, I mean, it is something that small c conservatives realize and accept if they ever want to, you know, uh, become the governing party ever again. Uh, and as you say, I think it's a matter of convincing the, uh, the far right. Could you just hold your nose on this so we can? <laughs> and I think that's, I mean, and to me, it's not holding your nose. It's actually just coming to terms with there is a risk to be dealt with. What's the most appropriate way to deal with it that's actually credible and proportionate for Canada? And um, it's not like you don't have most climate economists concurring 
that carbon taxes would be the most efficient form of carbon policy. And because if you're going to criticize the Trudeau government for interventions that are way costlier than a than what a carbon tax would be pegged at if we're not going to destroy our competitiveness, you have to actually step up and say, I'm at least in for that much, which they failed to do. So again, I concur fully that this is the point that the conservatives <clears throat> need to uh, reconsider. Um, because as much as we applaud them for deconstructing Bill C-69, if they were ever returned to power, that's still not going to convince people until they think that Canada can look the world in the eye and say, we're pursuing a climate policy that is as credible and as proportionate to our circumstances as you could ever reasonably ask of us. Uh, now, other than writing a number of books, uh, what, what does a retired TC energy executive do <laughs> these days? <laughs> well, this one um, uh, misses his grandchildren in the United States and would like to get back there to see them. And he, uh, you know, um, tries to be constructive in terms of promoting a, a national debate on things that he still cares about in this country. Because one thing that I personally would just like to emphasize is I was enormously fortunate in terms of the period of time that I was able to pursue my career. It was a career entirely in Alberta between the petrochemical industry and the uh, energy infrastructure business. And, you know, uh, I feel like there's an onus to try to preserve some of that same opportunity for, to future generations. And that's what's motivated me to write the books and to stay partly engaged in the public policy debate. So uh, um, th that's the most, uh, uh, there's lots of great joys about being retired comfortably and uh, those are obvious, but uh, this is one of the things that I've tried to do to uh, create uh, some improvement in our circumstances here in Canada. I'd like to thank our guest, retired TC Energy Executive and author, Dennis McConaughey, for joining us today. If you'd like to be a guest on the Wild West Show podcast, you can send an email to myself, Don Horn, at dhorne at ipt.ca, and put in the subject line, Wild West Show. Stay safe, everyone, and thank you again, Dennis. Thank you so much. It was a great interview.